All right. I have a question for you. I really hope that I'm not the first one to tell you about this. Um, raise your hand if you've heard of the internet. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Okay. That's good because it's really kind of complicated to explain what the internet is. Um, <clears throat> the internet is one of the most important like human innovations in technology in the last 30 years. And the internet has enabled us to do some really crazy things. Um, I'm taking classes right now at a university that is miles and miles away, and I get to see my professor's face in real time and interact with people who are in totally different countries in all different time zones. We get to be on the same page. The internet is amazing. It's allowed for inventions to be shared, knowledge to be shared, education to be accessed, all kinds of things. Some people have described the internet, I don't know who um, I'm quoting, but some people have described the internet as being like the greatest human achievement, like one of the greatest things we've ever achieved. Other people feel differently about the internet. I think the technical term I've heard is that the internet is humanity's dumpster fire. So, uh, or like the underbelly of society. Um, I think it depends on what like side of the internet you're on. But the internet can be also a really like crazy stupid place. Like people just putting whatever they want on like Wikipedia pages. And um, I don't know if you've ever been down like a Reddit rabbit hole. Wouldn't recommend it. Wouldn't recommend it. Unless you're changing a tire, in which case it's really helpful. So the internet can go both ways. And as I was prepping for this, I was reading a book. This guy's name is Kevin, Kevin DeYoung, and he's writing about the Ten Commandments. That's where we're going to be. Go ahead and open your Bibles, Exodus 20. Um, but he's talking about the Internet, and he's talking about this time that the Internet did something that the Internet does, which is really stupid things sometimes. Um, so the British government, our, our friends across the pond, the really big pond, um, they had this boat, this polar research vessel, $287 million it cost them to build this boat. I have to imagine it's like the size of the Titanic. I don't know. Hopefully it does better than that. Um, but they have this boat, and people aren't really like excited about boats these days, nor are they really excited about polar research. And so they're like, okay, how do we get people excited? The way to get people excited is to have buy-in. And so they're like, we need a name for this boat. What We should ask the people of the internet. Um, and you guys already know. You're already like, terrible decision. Don't trust people on the internet. If, if I'm the first one to tell you that, don't trust people on the internet. You'll get scammed, okay? Um, not from personal experience. Not from personal experience. Um, but so the British government's like, all right, let's put out a poll. And they had some really good names for this boat. They suggested Ernest Shackleton, which is like a really famous British explorer. They suggested Endeavor, like the labs at OSU, and Falcon. Like, wouldn't that be really cool? So the good people of the internet submit their, their names and their votes, and by a landslide, the good people of the internet voted by submission to name this $287 million boat, Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> Bodie McBoatface. And if you don't feel like you're in like a seventh grade Kahoot situation right now, I don't know what you're doing, because that is what the good people of the internet chose to name this thing. And the British government was like, well, we're not doing that. So they nixed it, and they realized the crowd of the internet 
makes really bad decisions. We should not leave important things up to the crowd. Boat names included. But in society right now, uh, we're kind of leaving morality up to the crowd, if you will, up to the internet, to the good people of the internet, um, to the people of the world. We're kind of crowdsourcing our morality right now. Things are changing. Um, what's true and not true is kind of up in the air, and it's almost kind of like up for a poll. Um, tonight, what we're going to be talking about is not what the internet or what we think is right, but actually what God thinks is right. And that's a little bit hard for us sometimes. Um, and I wanted to preface what we're going to talk about because I'm like 90% sure you've heard of what we're going to talk about tonight. And that is the Ten Commandments. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the phrase Ten Commandments. Keep your hand raised if you have watched the movie, The Ten Commandments. Okay, yeah, there's a movie. There's a movie. So this is a really common, um, this is like a well-known text like Randy was talking about. Um, but I want us to come to it with fresh eyes and with open hearts. Um, so turn to Exodus 20 if you're not there already. I want to catch you up briefly on how we got here. If you're just joining us or just to jog your memory of Exodus. We started out at the beginning of Exodus with the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. God calls Moses on Mount Sinai in a burning bush to go and set my people free. He goes to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no. After ten plagues, God defeats the Egyptian gods, and Pharaoh finally lets the people go. Then he changes his mind, and he races out to re-enslave the people as they're trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. God makes a way. He splits the Red Sea, the people of Israel go through on dry land, and the Egyptian army is drowned. So God leads them to Mount Sinai, fulfilling his promise to Moses. And like Alec talked about two weeks ago, we have this kind of like marriage ceremony that's happening. God recounts his deliverance of Israel, and he says, this is what I have done. I've delivered you. I've saved you. And the people say, and he, he says, will you be in covenant with me? God invites the people into a covenant. And the people say, we will do all that the Lord has said. They say, we do at the altar. And then last week, Drew talked to us about God descending on the mountain. He tells the people to consecrate themselves. He tells Moses to come up, not the people. And he comes down with fire and lightning and thunder and smoke because he is holy. And now God is going to give the expectations for the freedom that he has rescued his people into. Let me read Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. So God speaks out of the smoke from the mountain, and this is actually different. We don't get it in this text, but in Deuteronomy 5, 22 and 24, it says that the Lord spoke these commands in a loud voice, so we already know this, to the entire assembly, from the fire, cloud, and total darkness on the mountain, we collectively heard his voice from the fire. So this is different. God previously has spoken to Moses, and Moses has gone to 
to explain what God has said to the people. But this time, as God gives the law, he speaks directly so that all the people hear him. There's no mediator right now. God is speaking personally to his covenant people. And God begins by saying, I am the Lord your God. That's all caps, L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh, God's name. I am Yahweh. He reminds them that I am who I am. I'm the one who promised to deliver you. I'm the one who defeated the gods of Egypt, who led you through the Red Sea, and now I have led you into freedom. This is who I am. God also reminds them, this is who you are. He's speaking to the Israelites, those who have been delivered. He's about to give the law to a people who have already been delivered. That's really important, that God gives, he delivers, he invites into a covenant, and then when the people enter into the covenant, he gives the law and the expectation. So this is the first law. We're going to go slow through these. Um, We're going to spend three weeks in total on the Ten Commandments, so get comfy with Exodus 20. Let's read verse 3. Do not have any other gods besides me. Do not have other gods besides me. This is the first word, is actually what the, it's not commandment, it's just word, the ten words, the ten commandments. This is the first word that God gives to the people. He says, worship me only. Worship only Yahweh. In this command, God commands exclusive allegiance to himself. This is a radical commandment, especially for the Israelites, because in this time, every region had multiple gods. So you go to Egypt, you go to Sinai, you go to the wilderness. All the different people had different regional gods. So what's radical about this is not God saying, worship me. They would have gotten that. We get it. There's a lot of gods. What's radical about this is that God says, not just to worship me, but worship me only. He's asking for their exclusive allegiance. Exclusivity was not super popular in Israel's day. It's not super popular today. Um, But there is one relationship where exclusivity is still, I think, fairly respected, and that would be in the marriage covenant. Right, So we talked about how God and Israel have this almost marital vow moment in Exodus 19. Alec talked about that. Um, That's what's happening here. Because the whole basis of marriage, biblically speaking, God is the inventor of marriage. And so marriage is a one flesh lifelong union between one man and one woman. That is what marriage is. And the whole idea of it is based on exclusivity. So we don't talk about marriage like, marriage is great, but also you should be like open to affairs. Just be open to it, like be open-minded, be tolerant. No, we don't say that. We don't say that. If you say that, we have totally different ideas of marriage because the whole purpose of marriage, the structure of marriage is exclusivity, an intimacy that is protected by exclusive allegiance for one other person. And that is the kind of exclusivity that God demands of Israel. There is no worshiping God alongside anything else, according to the first commandment. Let's look at the second one, picking it up in verse 4. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above 
or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them, and do not serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. So I have to admit, like, on first first pass, these two uh, commandments back-to-back were confusing to me. Um, because it seems like first command, okay, we only worship Yahweh, got it. The second command is don't make idols. So it's kind of like, if we can only worship Yahweh, isn't it also implied that we cannot worship other idols, right? Like, I've, so I thought, like, is God repeating himself? What's the difference between worshiping another god or an idol and making an idol? What's the difference between those things? It's hard because idols are totally foreign to our context in Stillwater, America in 2024. We don't, I, I honestly, I don't know if I have seen an idol in person unless it was in a museum. And even then, I struggle to come up with a time that I've actually seen an idol. Um, but I want to tell you two things about idols that I think will help us understand a little bit of what this commandment is getting at. The first is that idols were a representation of a god or a deity. So I think part of what's hard for us to understand is that it's hard for us to imagine a wooden or a rock statue and saying, this is, this is a god. Because we're like, well, you made that. So like, how could that be? Like, has a made in China sticker on it. Like, how could that be? You know, like, we're, we're like, I don't think that that is a god, right? But neither did the people in Israel's day. It was a representation of a god. So they didn't think that the actual wooden statue was a god. It was a representation of a statue, and the, or of, an, of an idol. The second thing is that idols were a point of contact, a point of access to that god. Worshippers would bring a sacrifice to the idol. And as they're at the idol, they have a point of contact with the god. Now the god has a relationship with them because they have a point of contact, a way of accessing that God. So if you were to bring a sacrifice to whatever Egyptian God, you would say, okay, I've brought this sacrifice to you, Ra, that would be the God of the sun. Now Ra owes me something. I bring something to the Egyptian God Isis. She's the God of healing, so now she owes me healing. So I bring a sacrifice when I need healing. And the idol piece is the contact. That is how I'm in contact um, with that God. That's how idols were viewed in this culture. So with this understanding of idols in mind, the second commandment prohibits the worship of the true God in our own way on our terms. So it prohibits that. So the positive command is to worship God on his terms. God prohibits his people from making images or idols, not primarily of other gods, not of the Egyptian god Ra, but of making idols or images of him, of Yahweh himself. That's because we don't get to determine how we worship God. That's what this command is. God says, Israel, you worship me, and you worship me in the way that I say. And I say, no images, no idols. Why? Why, do you, why, why would God prohibit making an image of himself? 
Couldn't that be kind of like honoring to him? I think there's multiple reasons. If you want to hear my other three, you can come talk to me afterwards, but I had to cut them, so I'll just give you one. The, the biggest reason I think that God prohibits his people from making images of himself is that images limit God. John 4.24 tells us that God is spirit. God is unlimited in power, in knowledge, in presence. He cannot be bound. He cannot be fully comprehended. So to make an image of God is to lower God to a God that we can understand, to lower God to one that we can kind of manipulate or even determine what, what he looks like or what his nature is. It's a cheap substitute for worshiping a God who is spirit. So God is really, really serious about his people worshiping him on his terms in the right way. Let's look at the third commandment in verse 7. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. So this is the third commandment. You may have heard it phrased a different way. Um, The more popular phrasing in culture is, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. You may have heard that before. Um, I grew up in a household with two really faithful Christian parents, and they were really intentional about helping me and my siblings recognize that our speech mattered. and What we said reflected things about our own hearts. And so at the top of the list of things that we could not say was using the name of God or the name of Jesus as a curse word. That was off limits for me growing up. And you might think, oh, it's kind of restrictive. There were other things on the list, um, but that was at the top. You might think that's a little bit restrictive, um, but the Bible actually speaks strongly and consistently that you and I will be held accountable for every word that we say, careless or no. So I don't actually think that my parents were wrong in that, Um, but I used to think, like, as long as I'm not using God's name to curse, I'm good on the third commandment. Like, have not cursed today. Um, but as I've been studying, I think that there's more in view here. I don't think it's less. I don't think it's saying you can, you can use God's name however you want. Um, but I think there's more than just curse words in view here. That's because that phrase, do not misuse or take in vain, can be translated a couple different ways. And I think one of the most helpful is bear falsely which is kind of confusing. Do not bear the name of God falsely. What does that mean? Uh, To bear his name falsely means to do anything, either speaking or doing, that is inconsistent or false of God's name. I don't know if you were here when we uh, did Exodus 3. I actually got to teach this this text, so it's very fresh on my mind, um, where God reveals his name. He says that I am who I am, Yahweh. And we learn that names are representative of God's entire character. So when it says, do not bear the name of the Lord falsely, it's anything that is inconsistent with God's character. Let me give an example. So uh, I'm an employee of Sunnybrook Christian Church. I work here. Um, And as such, I am a representative of Sunnybrook. There is no Sunnybrook, really. There's just people who are Sunnybrook, right? Um, So... In part, I bear the name of Sunnybrook. I bear the reputation of Sunnybrook. Um, I even bear somewhat of the character of what makes Sunnybrook Sunnybrook. And I even have a credit card that says Sunnybrook Christian Church to buy you guys snacks. 
Um, and if I was to go to wherever you purchase private jets, I have no idea, um, and I was just to start swiping that card, one, it would get denied because of my limit. Um, but two, you would say that I have taken the name of Sunnybrook in vain. I've done something that is entirely inconsistent with the values and character of Sunnybrook that I represent. So to take the Lord's name in vain, to bear his name falsely, or to misuse his name is not just swearing. It is anything that the people of God do that is not aligned with God's character and God's commands. The third command calls the people of God to speak and act in a way that is aligned with the name and character of God. So let me recap these for you. Three commands. The first commandment is a call to exclusive allegiance to Yahweh, to worship only God, to forsake all alternatives for worship. The second commandment is a call to worship Yahweh, the one true God, on his terms, making no images or icons or idols. And the third command is the call to bear the name of Yahweh rightly, to act and speak in a way that is aligned with his name and character. I've looked at these commands a lot this week, and my pattern is that I write on the expo board like crazy in our office. And I realized as I was going through these that if I could distill these commandments down into a phrase or a sentence, it would go something like this, that this, this is the call of the first three commandments, to worship only the Lord on his terms, aligned with his character. That is the call of the first three commandments, to worship only the Lord, commandment one, on his terms, aligned with his character. These commands would have been a really big deal for Israel. They're coming out of Egypt, a land with many gods. Google said 2,000. I don't know if that's true, but that's what Google said. There's 2,000 Egyptian gods, and they're about to go into the promised land, the land of Canaan, which is marked by idol worship as well. Baal, Asherah, Molech, these other gods. And so this, they're living in a time when polytheism, the belief of many gods, belief in many gods, that's the norm. Everyone believes in many gods. So this would have been a radical call for the Israelites. Not us. I, I don't know very many people, legitimately, who worship idols. I can't remember the last time I've seen one. I don't know if I've ever touched an idol, much less bowed down to one. And in a room like this, especially, the chances are really high that you actually believe in the God of the Bible. Maybe you're, you're figuring it out, but probably a lot of us do believe in the God of the Bible. And so you might be thinking, what do these commands have to do with me? I don't bow down to idols. I believe in the God of the Bible. I want to propose to you that we need, you and I, need these commands against idolatry just as much as the Israelites did, if not more. But we're going to take a break, so we'll come back in the second half and talk about that. <laughs> um, okay, we'll talk about the Ten Commandments, but first, raise your hand. I'm really into this right now, raise your hand stuff, really into this. We're going to do worship earlier, later. And we're going to be raising our hands. So raise your hand if you have ever done an interview. Okay, this is awesome. Great news. You can put your hands down. Um, I've done several interviews 
which honestly could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. Um, when you do a lot of interviews, the nerves sort of start to wear off. Um, but I've noticed that like interviewers aren't that creative. Like, I don't know if there's just like a template that they've all been pulling from, like the Google Slides templates that we all use in school that like maybe there's an interview one. I don't know, but I realized they kind of ask the same questions. They kind of ask like, what are your strengths and weaknesses? And tell us about a time when you experienced conflict or tell us about a time when you took a project from start to finish, right? Sometimes they throw something interesting in there. I think the most interesting one I've heard um, was if you were a shoe, what kind of shoe would you be? In the moment, you're like, I'm applying for this job. How can I make this work? I said Chaco, obviously, because they are adventurous, like me. They are adaptable to several environments, water or not water. Um, <laughs> and cool tan lines. Cool tan lines. Are you kidding me? Like, Chaco's for the win. Anyways, that's for free. Um, but interviews are interesting because you're always trying to walk the line between like being honest and like being yourself and not being like too much yourself. Not like being honest, but not revealing the parts of yourself that may disqualify you from getting the job, right? And you want them to know that you're determined and you're hardworking and you're a team player and you're humble, but you don't want them to know that when you put proficient in Excel, what you really meant is proficient in looking up YouTube tutorials on Excel. Or that you watched all your lectures for that really important class on double speed while you made cookies. You don't want, you don't want, you're hoping that does not come up in the interview. Yeah, that would be too honest. That would be really honest. Um, one of the questions, though, that sometimes they'll ask, it's a little more open-ended. They'll say, describe yourself. Especially on like paper applications or online, not so much in person, but there's a lot of words I've used to describe myself. I'm not really short on words ever, but um, I've tried to use words like that are true of me, right? Like hopefully I'm hardworking, hopefully I'm detail-oriented or consistent. But you know what word I've never used to describe myself? Idol worshiper. That has never been in a drop-down that has never been like, select all of the above, hardworking, consistent idol worshiper. That has never come up because, let's be honest, that would be really, really weird. That would be so weird. If somebody's like, describe yourself and you're like, well, I dabble in idol worship a little bit, just here and there. Be like, okay, that's weird. Um, we do not describe ourselves that way. And I really think that the reason we don't describe ourselves that way is because I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you don't have an idol in your house. You don't have like a little statue in your house, a wooden engraved image. Maybe you do, uh, but we can talk about that. Um, but I actually do think that that description is actually pretty accurate of us. I told you that I think that we need these commands about idolatry just as much as the Israelites. And that's because I think that the poison of idolatry has found its way into our hearts and into our lives kind of subtly in ways that we wouldn't have expected, ways that are not as obvious as a little statue in your house. So I want to give you three forms of idolatry that are each a distortion of the good command that God has given. We walk through three commands, and so I want to give you three forms or categories or distortions of right worship of idolatry. 
So the first one, I'm going to call it God and. The first commandment that God gives is really simple. Worship only God, giving him exclusive allegiance. And I think in a room like this, there are a lot of us who do worship the God of the Bible. Maybe you're figuring out what that looks like. Um, But on the whole, I think the part that is most difficult for us is the same part that was difficult for the Israelites, worshiping God exclusively. We are often worshipers of God, but we are also worshipers of other things, if we're honest. We worship God and our family. We worship God and our grades. We worship God and our boyfriend or girlfriend or future marriage. We worship God and financial success. God and the approval of others. I think that there are two questions we can ask to help us diagnose ourselves to see if we've maybe slipped into this form of idolatry. The first question is, where is your identity? When you think of yourself, when you describe yourself to yourself, what comes to mind? Maybe you are the perfect kid, kid that never messed up the responsible one in your family. Maybe you're the star athlete, the honor roll student, the valedictorian. Maybe you're the one in your family who's finally going to make it out of your small town and make it big. Maybe you're the first one to go to college. Maybe you're the funny one. The question is, what things do you look to to tell you that you're worth something? Where is your identity? The second question we can ask ourselves is, what do you trust? When things go crazy in your life, when things get really hard, where do you put your trust? Is it in your own ability to figure things out? Your own hard work ethic? Maybe your education or the money in your savings account? Maybe it's your go-to friend or mentors? None of these things are inherently evil things. The problem is that if our identity and trust are in God plus anything else, the poison of idolatry has worked its way into our hearts and our lives. The second form of idolatry, I'm going to call it in, on my terms, in my image. The second commandment is that we would worship God on his terms in the ways that he has revealed. We can think, I have never made an image of God. I have never created an image of God, so therefore, I'm good. I have never made an image. But the thing is that, the thing about making images is that when we make an image, we limit who God is. We decide for ourselves who God is, and we decide how we should worship him. Let's deal with the first part of this, on my terms. I think a lot of us worship God on our terms. We think, okay, I'll go to church most times. Like 80% of Sundays, I'm there. Like if I don't have a late night, I'm there. I come to stuff like the table. I'm I'm in a table group. Like I'm, I'm serious about worshiping God. 
I'll read my Bible, pray sometimes, even. Try to be a kind person. Um, when things are bad in my life, I, I ask God to fix it. And when things are good, like, generally speaking, like, I mean, I'm mostly good, but glory to God, I guess, sort of. We think that by worshiping God, if I do X for God, God owes me Y. We treat God like an idol. I bring you this, you give me this. Or we can get something from God. Maybe that's a guarantee of a good life, a good network of friends, a community. Maybe a better version of ourselves. We worship God on our terms. Or that second part, in my image. God commanded the Israelites not to make images of him because we have control over the images we make. And we can deceive ourselves into thinking that God is something that he is not. Instead of worshiping the God who's revealed himself in a specific way in Scripture, we might end up worshiping a God that looks a whole lot like us. If the God that you serve is only ever loving and cares nothing about how you live, you might be worshiping a God made in your image. If the God you serve is only concerned with social justice, ending racism, and ending poverty, and not concerned how you behave sexually, you might be serving a God who's made in your own image. If the God you serve always agrees with your political party's policies, chances are you might be worshiping a God who's made in your own image. And if you find yourself, or you never find yourself, in an argument with Scripture and being the one who loses, you might be worshiping a God made in your image. Making God anything less than he has revealed himself to be by worshiping him on your terms or made in your image is evidence that the poison of idolatry has worked its way into our lives and our hearts. The third form of idolatry is in name only. The third commandment calls us to worship God by aligning our words and actions with his character, not taking his name in vain by doing things that don't align with who he is. And you can say, listen, Rachel, I, do, I don't curse. I don't use the name of God flippantly. I'm good on this, finally. <laughs> I'm good on But I think the true test is not whether you curse with his name, although I think that's definitely included. I think the true test is whether your life matches the name that you claim. Maybe you grew up going to church. I did. Having Christian parents. I did. Or grandparents. Maybe you go to church most Sundays, or you come to the table, or something like that. You claim the name of Jesus but your life doesn't seem to be affected, doesn't seem to match. You have the name of Christian, but your sexual life with pornography does not align with God's character. You claim the name of Christian, but your words constantly cut others down with sarcasm, crass joking, criticism, or complaining. You have the name of Christian, but the places and people that you hang out with the most are marked by getting drunk, 
rather than practicing the wisdom of self-control according to God's good character. You have the name of Christian, but the rhythms and habits of your life don't include prioritizing time with God's church in his word or in prayer. To worship Jesus in name only is evidence that the poison of idolatry has worked its way into our lives and hearts. When we look at those three idolatries, those three distortions of God's good commands, God and, on my terms and in my image, and in name only, I think we know that those are wrong. I think we get it. We feel it. We feel that those things are wrong. But it's so easy to fall into idolatry, and it's so hard to get out of it. Why is that? I think it's because the poison of idolatry is the false promise that idols give us. They promise us an identity and they promise us security. When we worship God and ambition, it promises to give us an identity as a successful person. When we worship God and sex, it gives us an identity of being chosen by someone. When we worship God and our education, it promises to give us an identity of being well-respected by our peers. When we worship and God, God and how our bodies look, it gives us the security of being admired and affirmed by others. And when we worship God on our terms, it gives us the security of if I do this for God, God owes me a good life. But the thing about idols, from one idol worshiper to another, is that idols always overpromise and underdeliver. Always. And the poison of idolatry is that it leads to death. There is no life in idols, no matter how much identity and security they promise. I have really good news, though, if you're an idol worshiper. And that good news is that the gospel is the antidote to the poison of idolatry. Jesus of Nazareth offers a better way. He, too, actually promises a new identity and new security. But he, unlike idols, is good on his promises. The truth of the gospel is that despite the poisonous lies of sin that we have bought into, despite the rebellion that we have participated in, God, who is completely good and holy, has made a way for us to go from death to life. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. That Yahweh God, the deliverer of Israel, has sent his son as a man to deliver you. That Jesus came and walked on this earth and lived the life that these commandments talk about. More fully than we ever could. The life that we have tried by our own goodness to grasp and has slipped through our fingers. Jesus took the punishment for our idol worship. Death. 
even on a cross, so that we who were children under wrath, as Ephesians 2 says, would not have to face the punishment that our idol worship deserves. And after three days, Jesus resurrected bodily from the grave, defeating death and offering life eternal. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus is the only way that we can come to God. We don't need an idol, a way to manipulate God into giving us eternal life. He has provided access to himself by Jesus, the one who is the image of the invisible God. We come into a saving relationship with him on his terms, by grace, through faith, because of the work and person of Jesus. The truth of the gospel is that we are given a new identity as sons and daughters of the king. We are given an identity that we could never earn by our good efforts, therefore we can never lose by our failure. And when we put our faith in Jesus, in what he has done on the cross, he adopts us into a new family, and he gives us his very spirit to teach us how to align our lives with his good character and his good commands. Another way of describing everything I'm talking about is something we actually say a lot here. It's one of our legs, the gospel-centered life. All that I'm talking about is what it looks like to have a gospel-centered life. And we, we define that as letting Jesus' work and identity shape every area of your life. This is what we long for for you. This is what we pray for for you, that you would live a gospel-centered life, that you would give up your idols of God plus anything else, that you would give up following God on your terms when it's convenient for you, and that you would give up following him in name only, and that you would live a life marked by worshiping God only on his terms. My challenge to you tonight is that you would give up worshiping anything but Jesus alone. That if you have not said yes to following Jesus by grace through faith, if you do not find your identity and security in him, that you would talk to somebody about what that means. And that if you have said yes to following Jesus by grace through faith. That tonight would be a night that you confess and repent, trusting that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We're going to sing a song in just a moment that talks about who Jesus is. That he is, in fact, the same Yahweh, the God most high since the beginning, king over all things. It speaks about what Jesus has done, coming to die, to make a way for us to come to God, taking the punishment of our sin that separated us from a holy God. And it speaks of a death that could not hold him, the death that he defeated by resurrecting on the third day.
And my favorite part of the song that we will proclaim together is that you have no rival. You have no equal now and forever. God, you reign. As we sing this song, my prayer has been this week and my plea to you is that these words would ring true in our lives. That the gospel would be the answer to our idolatry. For he alone is worthy. I'm going to read a scripture over you if you will close your eyes as the band plays. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, amen and amen. Let us stand and sing to our good God.